1: You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store
2: near you. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, earlier this week, we bid farewell to the former Secretary of State, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and an American military veteran whose service to our country inspired many. I'm talking about General Colin Powell. So here to give us some insight into his life and legacy is biographer and professor, Dr. Jeffrey Matthews. Jeffrey Matthews is a distinguished professor in the School of Business and Leadership at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, and he's wrote dozens of articles and three books, including the one we're going to discuss today, the biography of Colin Powell, Imperfect Patriot. So with that, welcome to Ion Veterans.
1: Thanks, Phil. Pleasure to be here, Uh, and always a special pleasure to talk about General Powell.
2: Indeed, and it's a guy that has taken up a considerable part of your life. I know that you worked for this book Colin Powell, imperfect patriot for, as I'd heard, about a decade and with so much invested in getting to know him. uh, What's the headline here? What should we all know about the late great leader, General Powell?
1: I was attracted to the story because I think it's a truly remarkable American story uh, and that um, I was really fascinated with just the, the idea and the question about, you know, how does this a man who uh, had his parents were immigrants from Jamaica, working class garment district in uh, New York, uh, raised in the South Bronx. And uh, as a boy, uh, Powell, well, he had lots of friends. Uh, uh, he was very amiable, uh, but he wasn't really a leader amongst his friends. He wasn't very good at, at school, uh, wasn't very driven. And his parents, quite frankly, were uh, uh, worried about him, uh, about where where he would go in life. And of course, as, as immigrants, they uh, from the caribbean they, they really had a, a strong value for education and so the only reason powell went to college was because his parents really wanted him to go uh, and he barely graduated from college and so going into the project i was thinking how does this person become you know the most uh, successful impressive trusted uh, military political figure of the post-cold war era uh, I was like i need to start to unravel that story
2: Let's kind of start with his early life. You got into it. You said he wasn't, you know, the most motivated. He kind of went to college at his parents' sort of forceful push. Uh, I can relate to that personally. Um, What did he study, and where did he go to school?
1: Uh, He went to uh, um, the City College of New York. His parents, uh, his mom in particular, and his aunts decided that he should be an engineer. So he started off uh, in kind of pre-engineering. Uh, that didn't last long. To kind of one uh, one difficult course that uh, that didn't go well. So he began searching for uh, a, another, a new major, and he had heard that geology was the easiest major on campus. Uh, so he switched <laughs> to be a geology major. Now, oh, that, I, and I have to say, I have to say, even that didn't go that well. Uh, and so, what really the kind of the key part of of, the, of going to college for him was finding ROTC. Uh, that that is really what all of a sudden it kind of put the spark uh, in his ambition and and his goal, what he wanted to do in life. Uh, And I think he would say that what ROTC provided was kind of the family structure um, that he had grown up with, including those kind of standards. Uh, And uh, and so ROTC gave that to him and he just thrived. Uh, And he was fortunate that his ROTC grades, which were all superlative, counted towards his cumulative GPA, which allowed him to graduate uh, by the skin of his teeth, as he would say.
2: (laughs) So cool. And it's been a running theme on this show with so many guests I talked to, though, how the military has given – many of us a structure and an environment where we can thrive whereas left to our own devices or out there swimming in the bigger pool um, you know we may we may have not found that inspiration we may not have found that path to success certainly he did well there wrote it all the way up to four-star yeah. general but along the way um, you know had experiences as a junior officer I'm curious to learn a little bit more about general Powell's um, time in Vietnam did he understand war did he understand combat did he understand grunt life um, you know the life of us enlisted guys. Did he understand kind of how we feel about having to execute what bureaucrats decide?
1: Yeah, I think he did. And, you know, one things about Powell coming in with ROTC, when he goes to his first major assignment in, in Germany uh, with, a, with, a first, as, uh, with a company that he, like a lot of green lieutenants, uh, right, quickly learned that they need to follow the lead of their command sergeant. Uh, right, or their lead staff sergeant, because they're the ones who really understand uh, the men. And so Powell, like so many people learned from NCOs uh, how to lead troops uh, at that grass level. And uh, and and Powell picked up on it very good. It was he, You know, Powell for his whole life had this magic touch with people. Uh, it was like the skill of an amazing politician that just re- radiated confidence uh, he was very smart, you know, great sense of humor, and he looked after his people, and and that, of course, as you know, flows both ways between listed officers, right? Um, that um, who they who uh, respect their superiors, right? That respect uh, when it's earned, uh, right? Not just given by rank, or really can build for some pretty tight not uh, not bonds. And in terms of Vietnam, I would just say, you know, he, he first goes over for his first tour as one of John F. Kennedy's. Uh, advisors, right, military advisors, and he gets assigned to a South Vietnamese unit, about 400 soldiers. uh, And he learned the hard way, again, about having to relearn leadership, because these soldiers really didn't want to follow his lead. He was seeing himself as pretty gung-ho, and they were pretty cautious about what they wanted to do in the field. So it was just another good lesson for him uh, along the way.
2: All right, let's talk about uh, maybe how race played into this. I know through serving that long, the military has changed a lot. But as an African-American, you know, I'm thinking back to the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, did that hinder his career or did that hold him back? Or was he able to advance uh, because of that?
1: Yeah, it, when it comes to race, it's interesting because Powell, uh, as a junior officer, you know, he comes into the military in the late 1950s, not that long after right, the military set so, uh, integrated, And so it's, it, even his um, ROTC commander advises him, look, you know, when you go into active service, that you've gotta be careful, that you don't wanna create waves. Don't be a political officer, right? As a, as a black uh, young officer, he was really worried about it. And so Powell kind of took that to heart. Um, and so he really just focused in on mission one, uh, right? Doing the best he could. Uh, and in terms of, of learning on the way, Powell had said that he did not want to be seen as a black officer, he wanted to be seen as an effective officer who happened to be black. And I think what happened over time though with Powell, he came to appreciate as he grew in rank uh, and uh, popularity, I think he, he began to assume a, uh, a bigger burden and felt the obligation that, that he needed to uh, be engaged with American society more as a black leader. Within the military, and he really started doing a lot of work within the military, particularly when it comes, like with the Buffalo Soldiers, for example, um, and creating a monument at Fort Leavenworth, you know, for that. And so he became much more active and I think conscious of, of race. And and I think it probably came to his advantage uh, a little bit when he was a field grade officer. Um, and so he, he he led a battalion in, in Korea, for example, and a brigade uh, in Kentucky with the 101st Airborne. And uh, and I think at the time and we're talking at you know the 1970s here, uh, the Army was definitely looking to uh, promote uh, you know qualified, effective uh, African American um, officers, and he was one of those. Uh, but I argue that by the time he becomes a general officer, which we can we can get to when you want, that. By then, I think it's it's his sure competency uh, that gets him promotion after promotion. He's working for extremely powerful people, uh, and he's very effective in serving and meeting their needs. And they're the ones who really bring him along. And I don't think it was because he was black.
2: Kind of combining the ability to be amiable and well-liked from his youth and his study and his knowledge base that he brought to being a responsible leader and to being a knowledgeable leader, not just a, a guy that was an academy guy that came up through the ranks because he was a wealthy elitist that, you know, had a good cush job in the military, but rather a person that could really stitch together relationships and keep them and understanding all ranks.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think because he grew up in a very ethnically diverse neighborhood uh, that and, and because he was ROTC and not West Point, he didn't quite have that chip on his shoulder um, uh, and he had that ability to navigate different kinds of people. And I just think uh, in the in the army and the military generally, if you have that kind of interpersonal skill set and kind of street knowledge uh, about things, I think that can give you uh, an advantage because you've had some lived experiences uh, that maybe people not coming from a working class background don't have.
2: And we'll be back with more on the life and legacy of Army veteran, statesman, and leader, General Colin Powell, when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans, and we'll continue now our conversation about the passing of General Colin Powell with Dr. Jeffrey Matthews, author of the biography, Colin Powell, Imperfect Patriot. Now, you'd mentioned um, you know, his time as a general officer, and I- I'd heard in other interviews, uh, you also mentioned that his life was kind of complicated. Let's jump into Iran-Contra. Um, explain to me where h- his career intersects with that chapter of the American military and the government. Sure.
1: So this is during the uh, Reagan administration, Uh, And so, and Powell is uh, is a two-star general. So he's a major general who gets assigned uh, to the Pentagon to be Caspar Weinberger's uh, top military assistant. And Weinberger at the time is the defense secretary uh, for Reagan. And uh, this relationship between uh, Secretary uh, Weinberger and Powell is crucially important because Powell uh, sees him as a second father figure. They're extremely close, including their uh, families, um and they're really joined at the hip and so pal is involved intimately with everything going on uh, in the defense secretary's office and of course one of those things that's going on uh, is um, the reagan administration's desire to sell missiles to iran uh, and also to support the contra uh, rebels in nicaragua who are attempting to overthrow uh, the communist government uh, in nicaragua well both of those programs um, were illicit. They they were illegal uh, programs, and 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 Casper Weinberger and Powell were both against, um, especially against the Iran uh, missile sales. Uh, but they, um, while they expressed their kind of a disapproval of it, and even if, even believing that it was illegal, uh, that they they didn't do anything to stop it. Uh, and so, uh, Powell is very fortunate because he he's intimately involved with this, but after his three-year tour of duty is over, he gets assigned to be a corps commander in Germany before the scandal breaks uh, and the scandal that links both of those illicit programs. And it's one of the ironies uh, of history, uh, and Powell recognized this, that he actually gets called back to Washington after only three or four months uh, in Germany to help clean up all the mess. And he, he becomes the deputy national security advisor uh, to, and one of his principal jobs is, is to, to stop all the kind of covert programs that the National Security Council office was, was running. Uh, and this is where the time where Powell starts to become known outside of the Army uh, and in kind of the public sphere. And so some profiles will start to be written about him when he successfully uh, helps clean up the, the national security office. And he actually becomes Reagan's national security advisor, his sixth one, his final one for his last year. Uh, and, and and this really sets the stage then for Powell's further
2: prominence. He, during Iran-Contra, naturally had to make a lot of connections, a lot of friendships across across the river there in Langley, and yeah. had a deep understanding of connections inside the intelligence agency that we know as the CIA, which is why I often wonder as we skip through his resume here, when we get into uh, the WMDs and we get into his address for the UN Security Council uh, under Bush and the whole entrance to the global war on terror, I often wonder, how was that blunder possible when he had such a deep understanding of the CIA? He had connections and he knew people. He knew CIA directors. Uh, How was it that he got it wrong with the WMDs?
1: Well, it's, it's, as you can imagine, it, it's a complicated story, and so one of the things that happens is when uh, he was he was surprised to learn that the president had decided that that Powell should go give a speech to the UN Security Council, and he only had about four days to prepare for it, and uh, so Powell is given a, a bunch of uh, documents from Dick Cheney's office, the vice president's office, um, and. Uh, and, he, and Powell asks his staff to look at it as the base as a basis for the speech, and they basically conclude that so much of what they were given is not verifiable uh, that they toss it out. And Powell says, "Start from scratch." Uh, and so he sends his staff over to to Langley, and Powell goes over them uh, over there himself. And what happens is they decide when they're starting from scratch, what they'll use as the basis for the speech is the CIA's national intelligence estimate on Iraq, which was done at the previous October, so four or five months prior. And this is the basis. So this is the CIA's assessment of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, uh, and also their assessment on connections to terrorists. And so the speech as it, as it comes out in the end is largely based on that document, which is about 90 pages uh, long um, and Powell includes uh, much of it uh, and the problem is uh, you know I had to wrestle with, was this an ethical problem I mean did Powell knowingly mislead the country on this issue and I decided uh, based on the evidence that it was not an ethical failure what it really kind of was it was an intellectual failure in the sense of what psychologists call confirmation bias and so Powell personally deeply believed that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, right? So he believed it to be true. Uh, And so when they're going through the CIA's, um, evidence. He's largely selecting, right, right, the CIA evidence that supports what he already believes to be true. And 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 the truth is, a lot of people in the CIA, including George Tenet, also believed it to be true. And then they just used that as the basis for saying, yes, there was biological weapons. Yes, there were chemical weapons. Uh, yes, there was a, a nuclear program. Um, and, and I think that was really the failure uh, there, because I... You can go online and find this document today. It's got some redactions in it, but the gist of the document is, is online. And you can read that. It, I, I told General Powell, I said, it reads kind of like one foot on the gas. Absolutely, they have weapons. Uh, and the other the other foot on the brakes simultaneously saying, we, we don't really even know what we have. We have less information than we did before the Persian Gulf War.
2: Now, quickly, and I don't mean to dive too deep, but as we compare and contrast the two different issues over there, I mean, the two different wars over there, you know, the early 90s and Desert Storm and then. You know, you've got Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. Did you ever have a conversation with him as the war dragged on into the five, the 10, the 15 year mark? Uh, did, Did you have any conversations about the state of affairs there and what what he felt we needed to do, even though at this point he was no longer secretary of state? He was he was he was out of government service. Did he have any thoughts or misgivings about how that snowballed and just kept going and going over three administrations?
1: We didn't talk about it extensively, uh, but I think I, I can say fairly that from the beginning of the war, he did not think we were sending enough troops and talking about the Iraq War, the second war. Um, there's um, uh, good evidence that shows that, that, that Powell uh, had reached out to uh, General Shelton at the time to say, hey, I don't think you're planning to send an, enough soldiers. Uh, and there was this belief Um, that, you know, maybe Powell's thinking was antiquated, uh, right? That you don't need to send a half a million soldiers because technological advancements, you know, allow us to do shock and awe with, you know, a third of the amount of troops. And I think everyone agrees, of course, now that that, that he was right and that we were not, you know, we were not prepared for the security and stabilization of the country. Uh, And I think he always saw that as the root of the problem uh, and that for the long-term problem, and also the idea that, uh, we got rid of the Iraqi army. Uh, that he was—he 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 was not consulted on that, and and he was in utter disbelief uh, when those when Bremer made those decisions. Uh, and so I think he saw it as a sinkhole uh, because we weren't prepared from the beginning.
2: Now, of course, we could go on and on about the times of war, but it is, of course, all in your book, Colin Powell, Imperfect Patriot. I um, want to chat just real quick. You said something earlier, I, I, I thought fascinating. Uh, we tend to only talk about his role as the general or as you know, joint chiefs, uh, not so much as secretary of state. And he really did some noteworthy good things. Share with me a couple or at least one highlight of something amazing that we can attribute to General Powell that we might not know, you know was his doing.
1: First thing I'll say, certainly his leadership of the State Department itself, right, 40,000 people worldwide, he inherited a mess, an ailing department, and he deserves great credit for being able to turn around the State Department and getting massive funding from Congress. But a, a separate story that surprised me the most, and I think most people don't know, and that, and that he, he deserves a lot of credit for, is the Bush administration, their commitment to global health programs, including combating HIV Uh, AIDS and malaria, that early in the Bush presidency, um, the UN, Kofi Annan at the UN, wanted the United States, wanted President Bush to commit $200 million to a new global health fund. And President Bush was not a big fan of the United Nations. But Powell realized that he saw global health issues could lead to uh, instability. And with instability, it becomes a a national security issue. And so he encourages the president to be the leader, the, the first donor. Uh, on this UN fund. And so the president agrees to give $200 million. Well, the president gets begins to get more and more excited about the potential uh, of being the leader on, on health issues. And in 2002, a, a year later, Bush agrees to commit another $500 million to the UN health program. And then he creates another $500 million program called the US Fund for Mothers and Children uh, around the world. And then in 2003, Bush uh, extraordinarily uh, creates a $15 billion uh, world health program focusing on malaria, TB, AIDS, HIV. Uh, and he, Bush really saw what he was trying to do with something akin to the Marshall Plan or the Peace Corps or the Berlin Airlift. Uh, and I think Powell deserves a lot of credit uh, because Powell uh, and others were in charge of, of managing these programs. And I think it's, it's just the remarkable story of American leadership on the world stage. And, and it was Powell who saw saw that opportunity.
2: Mm, fascinating look behind the curtain there. Appreciate it. Um, let's last wrap with this. And, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds on politics, but I know that, you know, he'd voted Republican much of his life, considered himself a Republican, and then maybe it changed direction towards the end. Can you share with me a little bit about what we find, learn in your book about that
0: aspect of his life?
1: Yeah, and I would say even before he was Republican, he 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 was an independent, but he often voted Democrat, voting for Johnson, for example, voting for Kennedy, uh, for example, um, and then he really becomes associated uh, with the Republican Party, starting of course in the Reagan administration uh, that way, and then but I Pal would say that over the years that he thought um, that the his Republican Party. Um, was was no longer the big tent party, that it was becoming kind of more oriented towards kind of right-wing politics. And Pal was very much a moderate, uh, believing in, for example, in a women's right to choose, believing in labor union rights uh, and things like that, um, that Pal Pal felt the party kept was moving away from him. And I think the big turning point that people have rightly pointed to is when he decides to come out publicly and support uh, Senator Barack Obama's campaign in 2008, instead of supporting uh, John McCain, uh, because I really think he was looking at politics now from a truly national issue, not not a partisan issue. Uh, and I think in retirement, uh, Powell was kind of a spokesman, I think, for moderate political America, not Republicans, not Democrats. And he saw the with the issue of race that um, Senator Obama could help move the country forward positively Uh, since Powell decided not to run for president himself in 1996. uh, He talked uh, uh, quite a bit with um, Senator Obama about running. And I just thought what he he thought in his mind, he was doing what was best for the country. uh, And, and that's, I think what accounts for him voting uh, more uh, democratic in in his later years.
2: Mm. Living life in the middle, which is really where I think so many of us live, but you know,
1: turn yeah, on your television
2: agreed. and you hear a totally different story um yeah i agree if you had to write his obit bit, uh, what would it say
0: uh
1: i i would focus on um the subtitle of my book is imperfect patriot and i just really see his his life that way like as i started when we started talking phil it's a it's a remarkable american story uh of someone who's tremendously influential and important and i think will be a role model uh, for for people for decades to come and uh, and i think uh, as imperfect as we all are uh, he did many great things uh, for the country and, and people beyond our country
2: outstanding well the book again is colin powell imperfect patriot you are the author dr jeffrey matthews uh, and i just really appreciate your time thank you for putting pen to paper and writing such a great book and uh yeah we will think of him and and really be glad that we have his story to learn from as uh you know a great patriot and a great veteran thanks Bill.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
2: When you're committed to raising the standard, you're bound to ruffle some feathers. At Happy Egg, we like to say we farm differently. But in reality, we produce eggs the way people used to by partnering with local small family farmers who raise our happy hens on eight or more acres. Because in our opinion, farming shouldn't be complicated, it should be happy. Choose Happy with Happy Egg. Visit happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store
0: near you. Happy Egg. Are you ready for an all new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss.